and welcome to Inspire, our fortnightly series where we talk to interesting people and share their stories. Today, we are lucky enough to be joined by Shona Fitzgerald, an expert in the field of water and sanitation, who is currently working at World Bank. Hi, Shona. Hi. Okay, so let's move into some of the questions. Despite your professional career being based around the human need of water and sanitation, you've actually worked for a range of organizations involved in government-owned, non-profits, and global institutions. What have you found to be the key difference between these, and what was the motivating factor for your career transition and selection? Thanks for that question. So um, just as a bit of context, I started out my career as a water and wastewater treatment engineer at Sydney Water. Um, there for, I assume there's a lot of people listening in Australia, but um, just for context, they're a big utility. So they're the, the urban water utility for Sydney. And I spent about six years with them. And then I have also worked for Engineers Without Borders in Cambodia on their field professional program. So I spent a year and a half over there and now I'm with the World Bank, um, as you mentioned, Hugo. So. Yeah, I guess looking at it from an outside perspective, it can look like they're quite different. And in some ways they are, but in some ways they're quite similar. So I guess in terms of starting with the last part of that question around transition and selection, for me, I don't think my motivation has necessarily changed. So um, like many engineers, I'm motivated by wanting to apply technical skills to solve social problems. So how do I use my knowledge and my skills to uh, improve the quality of life for people? And that's, I know that's very broad, but generally speaking, that, that's, that's what guides me, I guess, in terms of my career decisions. And the water industry, for me, is such a great way to do that because it's such a great intersection of engineering problems and just really essential daily human needs. So all of those organizations, they all deal with this issue. They just deal with this issue in different contexts and with different focus. So at Sydney Water, um, they're a really well-established water utility uh, and they have, they're really world-class in terms of their systems, their processes, the, the quality of the service that they provide, the partnerships that they have. So for me, that was a great learning experience. I had some excellent mentors. So good to see how how to deliver water and wastewater services in an effective, uh, effective way and to such high quality. Um, and then EWB, while it was still focusing on services for people, it was a bit closer to the ground and working with community, um, really thinking through what, so the role that I had there was mostly in sanitation. So what would it mean for this family to have a properly functioning toilet and how can we design a toilet that functions for them in this particular environment? So that was really much more human-centered, much more focused on the people who are benefiting from that, that service. Um, and then the World Bank is a really nice combination of those two things because we work on larger scale projects. I'm, a, I'm back in the utility world a little bit, working um, mostly in the Pacific Islands uh, with utilities there. Uh, but also they're really focused on that poverty question. So um, how do we end poverty? And of course, water and sanitation is a really big part of that, um, of helping people to have 
you know, essential public health and uh, to be able to go on with their lives. Um, yeah, so I guess while on the outset they might sound different, they're all kind of focused on the same goal, just different aspects of that goal. And so it's been a real privilege for me to be able to uh, learn and, and apply myself to improving people's lives in different ways. That's quite interesting, thank you. Have you always been motivated to go into a career focused around helping other people? Because I noticed that you did actually change degrees or at, build in a more professional er in the area of water and sanitation later on. Was that a key changing point or were you always focused on that path? Um, it's a good question. Uh, I think I would say that that's always been a motivating factor for me. But going into university, I had no idea what that would look like. So my, uh, my method, I guess, was to continue learning about the things that I was interested in. Um, and so that took me down the path of doing an arts degree in French and a science degree in chemistry. And then I was faced with the challenge of thinking through, okay, going back to that motivation of applying technical skills in a socially useful way, uh, how do I do this with this academic knowledge that I now have? And as I thought through that, it really became quite obvious for me that using my chemistry skills and applying them in the water industry would be a really good fit for me. So that was when I then pursued uh, water and wastewater engineering specifically. Uh, yeah, and very happy with that choice. It's been a really nice uh, way to use those different skills that I've picked up over the years. Yeah, that sounds like it yeah, all lines up and is a great progression. Have you actually used your French in your career that often? I know that some of the islands off the coast of Australia or in um, the surrounding area do actually speak French. Um, so have you used it for that? Um, so I would, I, the short answer is no, because I don't currently work in French speaking countries. However, it's for me, I really love that I have that skill and potentially can apply that skill in the future. But the way that I have used I, that degree um, is more in terms of what language learning gives you in terms of abstract thinking, understanding culture, understanding social context. Um, and my degree in French gave me a really good opportunity to dig into sociology and issues of identity and migration and all of those things. So that's probably more what I use or what's influenced my, the way that I work. Uh, yeah, I've seen so many studies on how learning a second language is really helpful for problem solving and just improving your thinking mm -hmm. in general. Unfortunately, yeah. I've only been able to learn coding languages because they're just easier <laughs> for me. Yes, helpful um, perhaps in a different way, but also, I mean, like with engineering, a lot of the skills that we learn at university are around problem solving, abstract thinking, reasoning skills. And yeah, I think over the course of a career, you learn to apply those in so many different ways, which is, is really great. Water and sanitation often goes unnoticed if it's implemented effectively unless it's a problem. This is the case in most modern cities, even though it supplies the backbone to allowing people to live in high density and still survive without a significant spread of disease. Sanitation has actually made, led to significant changes throughout history in cities. 
in the case of cholera, it actually led to the development of the modern sewage system and drainage system. And tuberculosis brought lighting and air to affordable housing. You have worked professionally in the area of climate change and sanitation, even making publications on the topic. How do you think cities will adapt to the future to deal with this issue? Thanks. There's so much in that question that I could talk about. I think you're absolutely right when you say that often we don't think about water supply and sanitation until they're an issue. Um, and they are really influential and they are really the backbone of public health. And we're so fortunate in Australia that actually most of the time we don't have to think about it. Um, but we think about it increasingly because we do have all of these climate change issues which are increasingly evident to us in our day-to-day -day lives. And so I think we are at quite an interesting point in history where these issues are no longer academic, um, but quite real for us. And, and the water industry is in a great position to, to help adapt and, and to be resilient to some of those challenges. Um, I'm personally really interested in ideas around um, cities in particular. So ideas around our city planning um, and how those how we can plan cities in a way that really um, gives social benefit, that improves people's quality of life. Um, and then the intersection of that with the water industry because uh, water can offer so much in terms of cooling of cities, in terms of um, amenity for people, ecosystem services. Uh, there's, there's a lot there that the water industry has to work with. And I think in Australia, We've started on that journey really well, um, exploring blue-green infrastructure, um, green corridors in cities. I'm sure everybody can think of an example, certainly in, in a close capital city or, or maybe even in their local area where they've seen um, improvements that maybe the utility or the council has made uh, through parks or stormwater management or different things which have improved their quality of life. And I think that's really great. The other thing that I think uh, where there's a big opportunity is in what we call the circular economy. So how do we not think about wastewater as waste, but think about wastewater as a resource? And we know that there's a lot in wastewater that um, we can use in, in a positive way. So we can extract energy, we can extract nutrients, lots of examples around the world of, of how we go about that. In Australia, we're very good at um, recycling water for irrigation, though there's a lot more scope to do different things, um, either to move into a potable reuse world or to extend our use of recycled water for, for agriculture and irrigation. So there's a lot of opportunity there. There's other opportunity in terms of um, nutrients both for agriculture, for animal feed, things like that. So I think th this um, idea of the circular economy is going to play a huge role in how we adapt to climate change. Um, and then it links in, as, as you mentioned, sanitation, of course, it links into that um, collecting and, and treating wastewater in cities. So I think the, the great thing about cities is that there are economies of scale. 
So there's actually a huge opportunity um, to, to use our resources better. Um, and in Australia, we've seen some government commitment towards that. In other countries, uh, yeah, it's, it can be difficult, I think, because sometimes it's more expensive to set up or to, to build the infrastructure that's required for those things. So there's big challenges around funding, there's challenges around knowledge, being able to operate and maintain different technologies, things like that. Um, but I think the key message there is that, yeah, in cities, there's huge opportunity. Um, the Cooperative Research Centre for Water Sensitive Cities has done heaps of work in this space, if um, anyone listening is interested. Uh, and yeah, lots of resources to draw on there. I guess um, it's probably also just worth saying that while cities have a lot of opportunity, we also can't forget the challenges in rural areas. Um, and in rural areas, you don't have those economies of scale. So it can be really difficult to find ways to build water and wastewater infrastructure in an affordable way and in a way that, you know, the operation and maintenance can be sustained. And, um, and that's a problem in rural Australia as much as, it is, as much as it is in developing countries as well. So that's a, a different challenge, but also one that we can't forget. And the other thing that we shouldn't forget either is that when we're talking about climate change and we're talking about cities, we know that vulnerable people living in cities, so marginalised, uh, impoverished uh, groups, uh, often are disproportionately affected by the impacts of climate change. Maybe they live in informal settlements on the outskirts of cities or in peri-urban areas, uh, more vulnerable to flooding, uh, you know, have to travel further for employment opportunities, things like that. And I think it's really important that we keep that in mind as well, that when we are making the most of these opportunities that we have, how are we making sure we include those people who are disproportionately affected and that we are um, considering them in the decisions that we make? What I found super interesting about that is like the pure complexity actually in a water system for even a city or regional areas. Because coming from having no or little to no background in the area of water and sanitation, like I would just think of it as there could be possibly a one solution fits all to issue where you just somehow get more water magically through desalination or another method and it would stock up the city. But it seems like there's so many other complex routes where you can go through and reuse everything and make it a lot more efficient. Absolutely, yeah. I think that when we're in a place that we're used to turning on the tap and the water comes out and it's clean enough to drink, it's, it's easy not to think about the complexity of the system that goes behind it. But yeah, the truth is that there's enormous complexity and enormous opportunity in, in how we um, optimise that system. So I think what we know is that in a time of climate change and having just uh, experienced and some areas of New South Wales still experiencing quite significant drought. Um, we know that diversification of water sources is key. So how do we build infrastructure in a way that diversifies our sources and is adaptable and flexible enough um, to respond when we're in drought or when we're, uh, when things are flooding, how do we have different types of infrastructure to manage that? So um, using green infrastructure as well as more traditional infrastructure. 
Yeah, so um, complexity, yeah, very true. There is, there is complexity. Uh, and I think that's partly what makes it such an interesting industry, but also makes it quite tricky because behind all of those options and behind all of those decisions, there's politics and there's um, financing challenges and there's um, capacity challenges, particularly in developing countries. So uh, yeah, there's a, there's a lot to work with. It's a very rich kind of tapestry of, of things that go into making water and sanitation happen. Innovation may also be pushed by focusing on people's specific human needs, which would be a focus of your work with EWB and World Bank. How have you and your teams actually ensured that the water solutions you implement are sustainable and will have a lasting effect? Yeah, it's always front of mind. Um, no one ever intends to build something that doesn't last or to teach someone something that isn't relevant or that, that won't serve them well. So we all try to do this um, and we all have to keep learning how to do it better. And uh, you mentioned AWB and World Bank, uh, really both good examples of, of how this comes in, innovation comes into my work, but I guess in different ways. So with Engineers Without Borders, they have a very strong human-centered design focus. And so the innovation there is really about approaching the, the problem uh, from a very human mindset, very people focused and, and trying to understand the context really well uh, and provide solutions that fit that context. And that's the model around which we hope that those solutions will both be appropriate for that place and those people, but also will last. Um, I think one thing I'd say about innovation uh, and what I've learned, particularly through EWB, but also through other um, experience as well, is that that context is everything. So uh, I mentioned human-centered design. Human-centered design really starts with understanding the context and understanding the problem. And I often think that if you if you really dig into the context in a, in a way that you think, well, that's a lot more detailed than you ever would have thought possible. And you really try and understand that place and those people, often the innovation just falls out of that. And you, while there's a temptation to really focus on the solution and focus on the details and explore all of that, in actual fact, if you really spend your time digging into the problem, then a lot of that stuff falls out quite, quite easily. Um, and there's an example that I always use, it's a bit old now, but in India in 2005, they, uh, there was a particular province in India where they had quite low access to sanitation. So about 30% of people in the rural areas had toilets. And they started this process of digging into context. What is it about this place? How might we address this issue? And what they, what, so they noticed, yep, okay, we've only got 30% access. Um, looked at issues such as uh, the vulnerability of women who are at higher risk of being assaulted while if they have to um, defecate in the open at night, for example. So the sorts of things you, you might normally look at when you're looking at a water and sanitation problem. But then they also looked at other things that you might not immediately think about, like demographics. So what they found was that there was 
many, there was a higher percentage of men than there were women. And what that insight told them was that, okay, well, marriage is very highly valued. And so given that there's more men than women, maybe women actually have a bit of a say in, in um, who they want their spouse to be and, and what that partnership might look like. And so they started a campaign which was called No Lou, No I Do, where essentially um, the women said, unless you have a toilet, I will not marry you. Uh, and in five years, I think they built 1.4 million toilets. And it's just, I think, such a great example of there wasn't anything special about the technology. There wasn't anything special about um, the, the education campaign necessarily, but it was just they really understood what was going to flip that equation. They really dug into the context to know how they might leverage that um, leverage that situation to improve sanitation for a lot of people. And I think that's, for me, a really good example of innovation because it, it's actually not about the technology, which is often what we think it is about. And then the other thing that I've learned about innovation is really that if there's not a good govern, government system, government um, commitment, I guess, um, institutions with good capacity, uh, plans, strategies, funding, everything that kind of goes into making a system work, if that's not in place, it actually doesn't matter how good your innovation is, it's just not gonna last. So I think one of the really great things that both AWB and the World Bank do is that they invest in that system as well. So yes, while there's um, technology problems or infrastructure uh, goals, there's also, so EWB really does this from a grassroots capacity building perspective. Um, and in Cambodia with them, I worked quite a lot with the, the government and I think that's really effective. And then the World Bank side, there's a lot of kind of technical assistance and capacity building of, uh, of the counterparts we work with there as well. So I think innovation sounds really exciting but at the end of the day it's always about really knowing the place and the people and making sure that all of that process and the things that we might think are a bit boring that all of that's really in place and functional to make things sustainable i'm glad you brought up context and human centered design and that story sounds like it made such a profound difference or could would and has made such a profound difference it's, yeah, going through our degrees in engineering, we're often told to like focus on human-centered design and go through the design process and take all these steps. But we often miss a lot of the links to actually how much difference it can take. And being in the humanitarian sector, I've heard so many stories of just people going overseas to work on the projects, for instance, in the wet season and building a well, which doesn't actually work in the dry season. And so it's so important yeah. to make sure you go through all those major checks and think about human context and what will actually fit in that context. Working for, working for multiple large organizations, which have been global, you've actually traveled the world and seen it and been part of experiences that you wouldn't normally see in Australia. What has been the most interesting thing you've experienced or been part of while you've been overseas? The most interesting is so hard to answer because you're right, there are, uh, yeah, I've, I've been very lucky to travel to a number of places which aren't necessarily on the tourist track. So 
and and also to work in these places, um, people open up to you in a way that they may not otherwise, and you really get these amazing insights into a place. Uh, Cambodia, especially, I found the people there are so welcoming and and were so willing to work with me and and for us to learn from one another, uh, and that was an amazing privilege. I think. Um, in terms of the most interesting, I might cheat a little bit and, and say what's the most interesting from a work perspective and then maybe just from a travel perspective. But work-wise, uh, I think the travel that I've done, the people that I've met, the conversations that I've had have taught me um, a couple of things which I probably didn't appreciate heaps in Australia. And one is that in in water sanitation and hygiene, there are two things that are really important. Maintenance, which often we don't think too much about uh, in Australia just because we have systems and processes in place that that happens. Um, of course, we spend a lot of money on it, but it's quite embedded in what we do. And then the other thing is, is just how important working with community, educating community, um, listening to community, uh, being, yeah, that the communication piece is just so important. Um, and for me, that really came home with a project I was doing in Cambodia with Engineers Without Borders, where we were working with a number of different households on some problems that they were having with their toilets. So um, they all had a toilet, but the, so there were pit latrines, it's in rural areas, but they were not functioning as intended, they were, they were generally overflowing or um, uh, yeah, clogged essentially, mostly because of the type of soil, high groundwater, uh, seasonal flooding, those sorts of issues. And there was, a, there was one household who we were working with and the, the, the man who we worked with there, we called him Omanamai, which means grandpa sanitation because uh, we went to his house and he had no real experience of water and sanitation, but he wanted a toilet that was important to him. He had, he, he had a toilet, um, but he had this problem with the pit that it kept overflowing. So he'd sort of creatively found some solutions. He had this sort of overflow pipe that was going back down to the back of his yard and he'd adjusted the pipes in certain ways to deal with smell issues and had just been really creative and innovative in the way that he solved those problems without really having any knowledge of that. And I was so impressed with him that he'd taken that initiative and that he cared that much. And I, I really enjoyed going to his house and, and talking to him and, and, and working with him to improve this problem for him. But there was this moment where we'd gone to the house one day and, and we're inspecting the pit and there was nappies in the pit and they were kind of blocking the pipe and we thought okay well we're going to have to explain that putting nappies in the pit is not a good idea and so he listened and he went oh okay no problem and then he he went away straight away and came back with a like a basket uh like a woven basket so not watertight and just started scooping the nappies out of the pit. And as you can imagine, a pit latrine, not just nappies in there, lots of fecal sludge, lots of floating stuff. It's not a pleasant place. Um, and yeah, he just kind of scooped it up with his bare hands and 
carried it dripping back to the back of the yard and just kind of put it all in a pile there. And that to him was the problem fixed. And I thought, yeah, this man who obviously values sanitation, which is great, um, wants a wants a clean environment, wants his toilet to work, and has gone to the effort of making these small changes and innovations. And yet that really basic messaging around the danger of fecal sludge, the fact that it can make you sick, that we, we can't just pick it up with our hands really, um, that there's a lot of risk associated with that in terms of um, illness. So uh, yeah, just a really good reminder that that, that communication piece that education piece is just so fundamental in any of the work that we do in water sanitation and hygiene. Um, and I have to say that one of the good things to come out of the COVID-19 pandemic is that we are talking more about hand washing and we are talking more about hygiene. And I really hope that that kind of renewed focus on hygiene and sanitation will will stick and that we'll be able to keep exploring that and and keep reinforcing that in places particularly where uh, there's really poor access to sanitation and hygiene as well so yeah i think from a work perspective there are some interesting things that really stick with me um and then from a travel perspective uh earlier this year i went to kiribati which is a pacific well it's a, it's a group of islands um kind of in the South Pacific, but up near the equator and coral atoll islands. And they're just beautiful, but also so remote and so distinct. And it's just such a privilege to go to those places and work with people who currently have water supply for two hours every second day. So working to try and find solutions for them, which I know will absolutely transform their lives if they can have 24 seven access to clean water. Um, and then also kind of looking at the sanitation question there as well and trying to improve that for people. So yeah, that's Kiribati was a really special place to go to as well. Yeah, I, I could keep talking about interesting experiences and amazing places forever though, but I'll, I'll leave it there. It's always amazing what you can actually get done with a small set of tools and even like in modern cities today or around the house, you can get so much done with just so little. It's, and like that island sounds absolutely extraordinary. And I can't even imagine only having like water for two hours a day. I don't know how like you could last and especially from my context. And so that must be very difficult. Yeah, I mean, the most amazing thing I think about that place is in, so in South Tarawa is is the capital where the World Bank is funding a project along with the Asian Development Bank at the moment. And the, the people who live there are just so resourceful um, and really good at capturing and storing rainwater and using that in a sparing way. They're so efficient with the way that they use water. Um, in some areas they'll use seawater for flushing their toilets. So they, they've really they, they've really gotten this concept of diversification of water sources. And I think that's remarkable. And we definitely could learn something from them in the way that they, they've been so resilient in that environment. It's truly extraordinary. 
thank you so much for joining us today. It's honestly been amazing to talk to you. And unfortunately, we don't have any more time for questions. Um, and so thank you. Thanks, Hugo. It was great to chat. And um, yeah, look forward to keeping involved with the EWB community. Uh, yeah, thank you. Now I'll hand everyone over to Muskin and Ning for our new segment, Discussions of Interest. Enjoy. Hey guys, welcome to the second part of our podcast. And um, today we'll be talking about the monoblock. So a couple of days ago, <laughs> um, I saw this documentary that talked about the one block chair that we see everywhere. Um, it's those white plastic chairs that can stack on each other and are quite comfortable to sit on. So this made me interested because it's one of the things that I've seen my whole life, but I never put a second thought about. So we went and did some digging oh, about this chair and this is what we found. Um, this chair is more accurately named the monoblock. Yeah, I think it's the most sold chair in the world. It's pretty like cheap, I would say. Um, what about you, Ms. Kun? What do you think? Yep. You know, despite it being everywhere, it doesn't seem as comfortable as it should be. You like, know, you know, when you, you sit on it for too long and it hurts? <laughs> Does it? I don't think I've yeah. seen sat on it for too long before. And then like, they let mosquitoes in everywhere. Doesn't protect oh, yeah, you very true. well. Yeah, they're in like every event I go to, like, you know, those outdoor events, they all yeah. use on a chair. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think like, <laughs> when I was younger, you know, like, the massive gap with the handle, like, <laughs> <laughs> like, fell through that. <laughs> Safety hazard. Yeah, so um, so I was looking into it, and monoblocks are produced using injection molding, where like the mold is injected um, with heated plastic, and then that forms the shape of the chair. <gasps> so that's why it's called the monoblock. It's like yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> it's like it doesn't need parts to be assembled. It's just yeah. one shape, and that's it. Yeah. Yep. And you know what? Despite the molds being like really expensive, one chair only costs around like three US dollars. Yeah, that's really It's a really mass produced chair. So, yeah. Yeah. They figured out how to make it cheap. Um, yeah. A fast, yeah. efficient, and cheap material because it's plastic. Yeah, definitely. And it's not very sustainable because it's plastic. Yeah. Yeah. And people don't really recycle. Yeah, they just chuck it probably. Goes into the landfill and people don't use it for a long time. It breaks down very quickly, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. There should be like um other ways of using it again or something. Yeah, there should be. Maybe there's ways to recycle it. Yeah, or maybe like melt this down or something and then make it again. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But I wonder if it's that plastic. You know that, pla this, the two types of plastics, like recycled or something? Yeah, 
Maybe this is not like recyclable plastic. But you never and know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um so about this monoblock chair, I have a bit of history about it. So like the first monoblock chair was made in 1946. Um it's not called actually called mono monoblock back then, it's called a one-piece molded plastic chair and was designed by A.G. Dohan and D. Simpson. Sorry if I butchered those names. So um, at the time of the production, um, the process wasn't suitable for mass production like what we have today. Um, and they look very similar to dining chairs. So time moved on and like in the 1960s, um, some designer looked back on this chair and was interested in the design because it's a plastic chair and they think um, it would be like they could do something more with it. So like a designer called Helmut got interested and he designed the Bowfingers chair. So that design is a stackable dining chair design. Um, it looks... Also, yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, it looks like you're gonna fall into the chair <laughs> with the back. I like those school chairs, honestly. Yeah. yeah. So, like, in the also in the 1960s, um, another chair was made by Werner Payton, and then it's called a Payton chair. So, um, so this Payton chair is another predecessor to the monoblock chair. And it's the first one to use the same molding method. You can kind of tell because it's so like uniform. It's like they just aerodynamic. Yeah, <laughs> aerodynamic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so due to the success in the production of this chair, um, some other people was more interested into like this injection molding process and they designed different chairs to fit it. So like in 1972, um, we have the Fortwell 300, which was designed by Henry um, Mossonet. Again, the name might be a bit <laughs> off, um, which is very similar to the um, monoblock chair design we see today with the armchairs look and they look really similar yeah it's really similar um but this one was still not mass produced so it was un only until 1983 with a gross felix group um that the monoblock chair went into mass production so this chair was called the Raisin Garden Chair. So that's basically the brief history of the monoblock chair. It's kind of interesting, kind of not. <laughs> um, yeah. So today we have a lot of different variations of this chair. And um, I think people don't usually think about the concept of chair design, but the different chairs can kind of tell you um, 
about the context they come they come from. Like in the 60s and 70s, a ball chair was very popular. And you can kind of tell by context that it was from the 60s and 70s. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like got that disco ball look of the 70s. Yeah. So some people will say that the monoblock chair is a context-free object. Um, described by, by Ethan Zuckerman because the monoblock is everywhere. You can see it in every country, in, in a lot of time periods. I mean, not that much from like 19-ish. <laughs> chair is a chair. Like people usually don't yeah. think about it a lot, but yeah. It's kind of interesting. So that's it from this podcast. We hope to see you again next time. Thank you for having us. Oh my gosh, they're going to click. Bye. Bye.